thank you so much for your faithfulness to the house of God on a Sunday morning. Amen. Don't you like what you feel in this house already today? Amen. I'm so glad the Lord come to church. Amen. 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 If you have your Bible, you can flip with me. I'm not going to read the text yet, but you can flip, flip with me to Ruth chapter 3. We will this morning begin in verse 10 in Ruth chapter 3. This morning, uh, we're going to be taking up our ninth lesson in our series on Ruth. And if you'll remember last week, we left Ruth standing in the dark. Uh, having just proposed marriage to Boaz, an audacious plan that involved uncovering his feet in the middle of the night and coming to him in a garment that was different from the widow's garment that she had been wearing up to that point, a garment that signified that she was ready for marriage and, and that she came to him and she put herself at his mercy. And then she had instructions from Naomi to... Do whatever he tells you to do. But instead, she made known her request to him. She told him what she wanted. Amen. She wanted him to exercise the right of a kinsman redeemer and marry her. And so we stood and we left her then standing in the dark, having made that request uh, and not knowing how Boaz would answer her. So today uh, we'll talk about Boaz's reaction to that proposal and we'll set the stage for the final scene of the story. But as we get ready to head into today's lesson, I do need to point out something that we haven't discussed a whole lot up until this point. This story, the book of Ruth, is a narrative. And it is, it is the telling of a story to convey specific points. Narratives in the Bible are not just stories about people and events and places and, and the things they experienced in their life. Ultimately, they are stories that demonstrate the goodness of God. They're stories that demonstrate the way God works and the way He loves us and the way He manifests Himself in our lives. And so uh, the point of this story is not just as an interesting love story between Ruth and Boaz, but it's designed to show us how God loves us. Amen? It's a divinely inspired work. It is, it is, we do believe in complete and full inspiration of the Word of God, which means that we believe that the person who is writing this book, the book of Ruth, is operating under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. However, there's a certain amount of literary craft that goes into this sort of narrative. The words that are used, the, the foreshadowing, the repetition, some of those things are very important to the Hebrew text because they build up the tension of the story in certain places and they release the tension in other places. And, and just like any good story, the, a narrative needs these moments of tension and these moments of release as it brings you to the point of the story. Now, some of those devices are not readily apparent to us because we read the story in English and it was written in Hebrew. And so uh, what was apparent to the original Hebrew readers of the story may not be as apparent to us. For instance, when words are repeated or phrases are repeated in the story, it causes the Hebrew reader who sees that same phrase later in the story to recall where that phrase was used before. But in the English translation, the phrases are not always translated exactly the same because when and translation is the art of, 
of context. It's the art of telling what these words mean in the context that they're in. And so sometimes that what was obvious in the Hebrew mind may be obscured somewhat in the English translation of the Hebrew story. So the author may have chosen to repeat, repeat a phrase or repeat, repeat a concept that appeared earlier in the story and, and by so doing connect two portions of the story. But if we don't have the opportunity to, to, to study the underlying Hebrew text, sometimes we're going to miss that because that repetition doesn't show up in the English translation. This morning... And this lesson is particular in this regard because up until now we've been telling the story. We're moving now into the area of the conclusion of the story. And the author is going to tie a lot of things together this morning moving into the next uh, and final phase of this story. And so we're going to see those repetitions come into play. And uh, we're going to encounter those those phrases and those repetitions that really shape this story and shape our understanding of this story. So I'll be pointing that out as we move through the story this morning, the phrases that are being used that are being picked back up from earlier in the story, what they, what the, the, the importance they bring in with them, the, the uh, theological weight that they carry into the story as they're imported forward into another place in the narrative. Does that make sense? First of all, though, we need to pick up where we left Ruth. As Brother Larry said previously in the book of Ruth, amen, Ruth was standing at the foot of the bed of Boaz on the threshing floor, and she has just made this audacious proposal. She has stepped out of her social strata of a servant, a lowly, destitute widow, and she has asked a wealthy landowner, if you will, to marry her. That's just not the way it's supposed to go. Amen? It's supposed to go the other way around. And so we've left her there, and we've not yet heard Boaz's response. Verse 10 gives us the words of Boaz, and we'll take one verse at a time, and we'll cover the rest of this chapter this morning, beginning in verse 10. And he said, he being Boaz, Blessed be thou the Lord my daughter. For thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. There's a lot here, but the opening phrase is extremely important because it relieves the dramatic tension that we, we set up last week. We left Ruth standing at the bed of Boaz, not knowing exactly how he is going to respond to her, standing at the mercy of Boaz. And finally, we get to hear Boaz's response, and he begins with a blessing. Amen? He, he, he begins by saying, blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter. Amen. And that, that, that phrase that he uses, what's unique about it, is the same phrase that Naomi used when Ruth came back from the field on the very first day. Back in chapter 2, when Ruth comes back from the field, and she's got all that grain that Boaz has blessed her with. And Naomi says of Boaz, may he be blessed of the Lord. It's the same terminology. It's the same phrase. And if you'll remember when we talked about it then, we said that, 
the sense of that phrase is not that Naomi's saying, I'm going to bless Boaz, but it's Naomi saying, I don't have the resources to bless Boaz. If he's going to be repaid for his kindness, God's going to have to do it. Amen. And so it's Naomi saying, uh, that, you know, this is out of my hands. May God repay him for his kindness. May God bless him for what he's done. And so the grammatical structure there lends itself to the idea that it's not Boaz blessing Ruth, but it's Boaz saying, because of what you've done, I don't even have the resources to return to you the kindness you're showing. And so may God bless you. It's going to be God's blessings that are going to repay your act of kindness. Amen? So it conveys the same sense of indebtedness in between Boaz and Ruth that Naomi felt towards Boaz because he helped Ruth. And so you see a kind of a parallel taking place in the story. Immediately then we, we begin to see that Boaz is overwhelmed, but he's overwhelmed in a good way at Ruth's proposal. And he continues by extolling her kindness in this matter. He says, you've shown me more kindness now at this point in the story than you showed earlier in the story. Now that raises the question, what kind of kindness did, did Ruth show earlier in the story? And that harkens back to the first encounter between Boaz and Ruth in the field. And if you'll remember, whenever Boaz came to the field and he saw Ruth work in the field, he asked, whose is she? Amen. And then once he found out who she was, he went to her and, and they conversed. And in the course of that conversation, when she put herself at his mercy, he said, I know who you are. Amen. Because it has been noised all over Bethlehem what kindness you've shown to your mother-in-law. Amen. You've, you've, you've hooked your fortune to hers and you've come out of Moab with her and you've come back and, and you're, you're working in this field to provide for her. Amen. And so he, he said to her, amen, that the Lord was going to bring Ruth under his wings, under the Lord's wings, amen, in repayment for her kindness to Naomi. And we talked about that. We talked about how whenever in this, the, we pulled the verse out of Psalms, it says that whenever you give to someone who doesn't have the resources to give back, it's not them that owes the debt, but it's God that owes the debt. Amen. And God will repay your kindness. You, you can bless folks and you can give to folks that have absolutely no resources to give back to. You'll never get any material blessing out of it. You're never even going to get so much as a thank you, but that's okay because God's the one that's going going to repay you for your kindness and for your mercy and for your charity. You remember talking about that? Amen. So that's where we are. It's that same uh, statement. It's that same uh, uh, blessing. It's, it's that same thing. She's saying to Boaz, back when you were kind to Naomi, you were, you were kind to her for everything uh, that, that you had done. You, you left your land. You forsook your home. You, you left your family and your kindred and your countrymen, and you came to labor as a, as a re gleaner in the field just to make sure your mother-in-law is provided for and he said God's going to bless you for that kindness amen again the repetition of a Hebrew word occurs here it's the word has said and has said is the word that's translated in ki as kindness in both of those texts early in the story when Boaz says it to uh, Ruth and then later now in the story when he says it to Ruth again that word has said is a word that conveys a a meaning that is deeper than just simply kindness. It speaks of family devotion. It speaks of loyalty. 
it speaks of a commitment to express that loyalty in a certain kind of kindness. And it, it was very applicable to what Ruth had done for Naomi. It was, it, was, it was loyalty that caused her to say, I'm not going to turn back, but I'm going to go with you. It was that sense of familial devotion that said, you're my mother-in-law, and I'm going to go and provide for you. It was that, it was that sense of, uh, uh, of, of loyalty in Ruth that brought her here. And so that was, that's what that word conveys. It's more than just an act of kindness. It's an act of loyalty and devotion and commitment. And so when Boaz praised Ruth for forsaking her homeland and staying with Naomi, he was praising her not just for her kindness, but for her family devotion, for her sense of loyalty, for the sacrifice that she was willing to make so that a member of her family would be blessed. Not that she would get the blessing. She's going to work in the field, but she's going to provide for her mother-in-law. And now we learn that that same word Boaz uses here, this is the way he views Ruth's proposal to him. It's another act of kindness. Well, how is Ruth proposing to Boaz an act of kindness? She hasn't done what would have been natural for a young woman of her age. She hasn't done what other young women might have done. Let's, let's go back to the case of Naomi. And when, whenever it was time to leave Moab, the, the natural course was for Ruth to go back to the land of her countrymen, back to her mother's house, back to a place where she could get married again, where she could have a family, where she could maybe put her life back on track, not to go with Naomi to Bethlehem, where she'd be bound by the Levitical law, that there wouldn't be someone who could redeem her. We don't know at this point in the story that Boaz is available to redeem her. We only know that if she goes to Bethlehem, she's never going to be able to marry again, but she's going to be under Levitical law, and her husband is dead, and there's no kinsman there, and there's no one who can, who can, uh, fulfill the vow of the law and so she's going she's forsaking all of that so the natural course would have been go back matter of fact that's what Orpah her sister did she followed the natural course of things but Ruth denied that natural inclination and out of loyalty to Naomi she expressed her kindness by going with her what what Boaz is saying here is that Ruth has done the same thing with him. The natural way of things would have been for Ruth to forget about Hebrew tradition that she wasn't necessarily bound to. She was a Moabitess, after all, and that's what the, the text keeps reminding us. She was a Moabitess. And if, if she were so inclined, she could have just ignored Hebrew tradition, and she could have pursued a younger man. She could have pursued a, a, a younger husband. And that word young doesn't necessarily convey age as much as it conveys the idea of preferred choice uh, a better if you will there 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 were others who were maybe closer to her own age but were were perhaps more attractive or perhaps they they had better resources or, or, or there were some that may have been better for her and it would have been the natural course of events for Ruth to seek out a man closer to her own age. It would have been a natural course of events for Ruth to decide that she was going to marry for love, in which case she might choose a poor man. Amen? You only marry poor men out of love. Can all the women say amen? Or it might be that she would marry for a sense of prosperity or wellness, in which case she might marry a rich young man, because that's why you marry rich young men. Amen? 
But, but that's not the case here. So he, but he's making this statement and in, in talking about young men, poor and rich. He's saying you, you had options. You could have played the field. There was a lot available to you. You could, have, you could have married for love or you could have married for security. You could have done a lot of things. You didn't have to pursue an older gentleman, amen, that could fulfill the Levitical vow that you're bound by. You didn't, you didn't have to come and do that. It's your kindness that compels you to do that. Amen? Obviously, there's a compliment in this. Boaz believes that Ruth would have no trouble getting whatever man she wanted. She should have had her choice. He, he's complimenting her in a way. There, there's, 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 there's absolutely no doubt that she could have had better options had she wanted them. But in the same sense of loyalty that bound Ruth to Naomi, loyalty has now, I mean, Ruth has now shown respect for the Hebrew traditions, and has sought out Boaz as the kinsman, the redeemer, a person that qualifies as her kinsman redeemer, that can, that can make her whole and right under the Levitical law and still fulfill all the desires of her heart. Amen. She doesn't want to marry poor, and she doesn't want to marry rich. She wants to marry in the will of God. I'm going to say that again. She doesn't want to marry poor, and she doesn't want to marry rich, and she's not worried about getting the best, and she's not worried about getting uh, whatever level or whatever status. She's worried about being in the will of God. She's been promised you're going to come under the wings uh, of the Almighty, and she recognizes if she's going to stay under the wings of the Almighty, then she's got to walk in the ways of the Lord. Can I get an Amen. Amen. And so that's what she's looking for in life. She's looking for the opportunity to both achieve her, her dreams and goals and, and be married again and have a successful and fruitful life, but at the same time be in the will and the purpose and the plan of God for her life. Verse 11 says, And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. So continuing his warm and tender tone, Boaz addresses Ruth once more as my daughter. Amen. And then uh, he seeks to calm her fears or insecurities about the situation with a traditional phrase, a Hebrew phrase that, that means don't be afraid. And then shifting his attention from the past to the future, Boaz reassures Ruth by promising to do everything that she has asked him to do. This is a notable turn of events. If you'll remember, Naomi's plan for Ruth was that she would go to Boaz without her widow's garments on, and she would make it known that she was available, and then she would do whatever Boaz told her to do. But if you'll remember, Whenever Ruth came, to, she, she fulfilled the first half of that. She, she changed her garment. She put on a, a robe that signified that she was not a widow or that she was not in mourning anymore. And she went to where Boaz was, and she, she did exactly what Naomi told her to do. She uncovered his feet. She laid down at the foot of his bed, and she waited for the cold of the night to wake him. 
and startle him and cause him to realize that she was there and recognize the invitation that she was making to, I'm willing to become your bride. And doing it in such a way they didn't put him in a place where he would be embarrassed or somebody else would know and they if he turned her down that he would be questioned. Giving him, giving him complete security and privacy, but also making that that gesture that lets him know she's available. But at that point, Ruth calls an audible. She goes off book. Uh, she decides to do it her own way. Instead of waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do, Ruth just puts it out there. She lets him know what she wants him to do. In other words, she tells Boaz what he needs to do. She wants him to marry her. She wants him to, 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 to claim the right of a kinsman redeemer. And now Boaz... Ruth is supposed to be waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do, and she's supposed to do whatever Boaz says to do. But now we see Boaz saying, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Boaz makes himself uh, the servant of Ruth. He's willing to do whatever she asks. That's, the narrator has quite ingenious, uh, ingeniously, if, you, if that's even a word, has flipped the social context here. It was supposed to have been that, that Ruth was... Uh, the destitute Moabite widow, the servant, and Boaz was the wealthy Hebrew landowner, the master, and he's supposed to give the orders and she's supposed to follow them, right? But Boaz, the, the situation's been flipped. The social order has been subverted, and Boaz has submitted to Ruth's desire. In one sense, now she's become the master and he's become the servant. In one sense, she said, this is what I want. And he said, you know what? I'll do whatever you want. Whatever you tell me to do. Listen, husbands, listen up, gentlemen. This is the key to a happy marriage. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. Amen. Wherever you, whatever you instruct, I'm willing. All the women say amen. Amen. <laughs> well, praise the Lord anyway. <laughs> so... By way of explaining his actions, Boaz describes Ruth as a woman of notable character or a virtuous woman. That, that statement describes Ruth. Again, we're, I told you these repetitions are important in this portion of the story. It uses the same language that was previously used in the story by Naomi to describe Boaz. It's that same phrase, that same language. In other words, uh, whenever, whenever Naomi told Ruth that Boaz was a, a, a notable character, he was a good man, he was a virtuous man, a, a whatever, however you might say that, a man of worth. Amen. Now, Boaz is using the same language to describe Ruth. In other words, what the narrative wants you to see here is Boaz sees Ruth as an equal, not as inferior, not as somebody that he can step on and then he can order around or his servant girl, if you will, but it elevates Ruth to the level of uh, on equal footing with Boaz. Amen. She's of the same nature as he is. She may have been a destitute widow, but she's a woman of worth. Amen. 
She may have been a destitute widow who came out of Moab, but she's a woman of strength. She's a virtuous woman. I'm going to tell you something, and I'm not going to chase this rabbit trail because I don't know if there's a U-turn down there where I can get back. Amen. But uh, there's, there's a sense in the house of God and the presence of God and among the people of God that empowers you as women to be what God's called you to be. You're women of worth. Amen. You're women of value. There's a sense in culture and society that demeans women, that, that makes them objects of, of, of pursuit and, and takes away from them their value. But there, it ought to always be in the house of God that there's a sense that a woman has worth and a woman has value more than just as a sex symbol in our society, more than just as a subservient person who does what she's told to do. But in some sense, gentlemen, she's your equal. Man, I, I got a big fat check coming from the women when this service is over with today. Amen. This is a this is a story about Ruth. Amen. So we're going to tell it. And and so Ruth is a woman of noble character. What an amazing turn of events that signifies. Ruth has arrived in Bethlehem just a few short weeks ago, six months ago, as a foreigner at the mercy of the locals. She was the lowest of the low. She had no recourse but to scavenge in the fields just to hope she can make, find enough food to feed her and her mother-in-law. But because of her devotion, because of her kindness, because of that familial dedication that has led her to put herself out there, amen, she has earned a reputation among the people. They have begun to see Ruth for who she really is. Amen. And her kindness is now coming full circle. She's not just a destitute widow from Moab. Uh, she's a woman of worth. And she will be united with her soulmate, a man who is her equal in character. As a matter of fact, it's, it's likely that at this point in the story, the Hebrew narrators want you to see the reason Ruth hasn't pursued anybody else is there's nobody else that was worthy of her. She's a woman of worth, and Boaz is a man of worth. They were made for each other. Amen. Perhaps he's the only person in the story who is good enough for her. So we've just elevated her from widow status, from servant status, and put her on the same level as Boaz. And said, all those younger men, they don't measure up. Amen. She's better than they are. She's and I don't maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but it's a good way to put it. Amen. She's she's better than that. She's on the same level as Boaz. Does that make sense? Verse 12 says, and now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. Howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. My wife loves to watch these sappy love stories. And I have observed after years of, I can't say I watch them, but I'm, I'm, I'm present when they're happening. I've learned after years that they all have the same plot. I mean, you start with two characters that are apart, and there are obstacles between them. And gradually you bring them together. And when you finally get them in the place that all the obstacles are removed, there comes this moment of dramatic tension that drives between them, and they're separated again. That's always towards the end of the story. That's always going to end with a kiss, and they're going to get back together. But for just a moment, it looks like the whole thing falls apart. 
It looks like this carefully constructed plot that has brought these two people together and finally broken down the barriers and got through the differences and got past all the obstacles and finally they're in love and then boom, man, they're on opposite sides of the fence. He's mad at her. She's mad at him. They're as far away from one another as they can get. It looks like they'll never come back together again. Irritates my wife because I always point out that point in the plot where that just happens. She's like, I'm enjoying this. You just shut up. (laughs) But that's where we are in this story. Every plot needs a wrinkle. Every budding love story needs a moment of dramatic tension. And so Ruth's heart must have skipped a beat when Boaz continued by saying, Yeah, I I am your kinsman redeemer. But there is another who is in line ahead of me who has a more immediate claim than I do. Now that Ruth has drawn Boaz out, now that she's gotten the proposal on the table, now that the reader knows that they're a perfect match, they're made for each other, the narrator reintroduces the tension that carries the story to the next. You wouldn't read the next chapter if you didn't. That's the reason they do that. They, they don't want you to go see the end of the football game or whatever. They want you to see all the way through. Amen. They, they do that to keep you in the story to the end. You wouldn't read chapter 4 if this didn't happen at the end of chapter 3. But there's this moment, this tension, this dramatic separation that happens. And, and it's going to carry us into, into the next phase of the story. But we'll continue with, with this chapter. Verse 13 says, Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth, lie down until the morning. I'm just going to say Boaz approaches this problem just like a man. First, he focuses on the immediate dilemma. Presenting me with a problem, I'm going to give you an answer. What should Ruth do right now in the middle of the night? Should she try to sneak home at this late hour and not be, maybe take the chance of of running at this time of night, running to unsavory individuals who might take advantage of her? Or should she wait for a safer time? And so he tells her to stay here, spend the night here. The Hebrew text intentionally uses a verb that's free from any sexual connotation. The narrator does not want to be misunderstood on this point. Ruth spent the night at the foot of his bed. She didn't spend the night in his bed. Amen? The verb used here is the same verb that Ruth used in her pledge to Naomi. You remember when they were coming out of Moab, she said, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you lodge... I will lodge. That word lodge is the verb that's used here. And in a sense, then, uh, there's a sense of the fulfillment of Ruth's vow in this statement that speaks to more than just the immediate context of where she'll spend the night. In a sense, Boaz is saying, lodge here. Lodge with me. Lodge, this is about your future. This is about fulfillment of that vow. This is about wherever Ruth, wherever Naomi lodges, this is where Ruth is going to lodge, too. There's a tie-in that takes place there. But then he shows all the sensitivity of a man. He says, in the morning, I'm sorry, gentlemen, this is just the way the story's told. In the morning, he says, I'll fulfill my duty. I'll go talk to the other kinsmen, 
And if he wants to marry you, so be it. But if not, then I'll be more than happy to be your kinsman redeemer. So in the morning, I'll fulfill my duty. In the morning, I'll, I'll go and do what's right. Perhaps from Boaz's viewpoint, she's going to be covered either way. Perhaps from Boaz's viewpoint, she's going to be provided for either way. If, if he chooses, if the, if the other kinsman chooses to marry her, well, then there she's going to be taken care of, and she's going to be provided for. But, but if he doesn't, then Boaz will more than gladly fulfill the heat. It's his desire to be her husband. Amen. And perhaps we don't get the whole story here. Perhaps Boaz has an inclination or a sense that that other man isn't willing or isn't going to be willing or isn't interested. We don't really know that. We just know that, that Boaz says, ah, it'll all work out. Amen. It, 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 you know, it, Ruth must have been somewhat in shock. She doesn't want another man. We've already covered this. If she wanted another man, she could have had him. Amen. She wanted to pursue somebody else. She could have done, gone and done that. But what's not visible in the text, but what is implied in the story, is a sense of trusting in God. That, that's an inherent part of the entire story from beginning to end. Boaz is urging Ruth, just wait. Not just flippantly, it'll all work out. But God's got this. Amen? God's going to work this out. We can trust the Lord. We, we, we haven't done anything uh, that puts us out of his will. We haven't done anything uh, uh, that's a fault to our character. Amen. And at this point in the story, we can put this in God's hands. And he can take care of it. Amen. Verse 14 says, And she lay at his feet until the morning. And she rose up before one could know another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came unto the floor. So, Ruth lay back down at his feet for the remainder of the night. And, and i got to imagine it was a long night for both of them. Uh, I tried uh, to, to go to bed early Friday night in a real nice hotel room in Little Rock because I knew I was going to get up in the middle of the night and drive home because I wanted to take my boys and my dad deer hunting on Saturday morning. So I've got to drive all night long to get home, pick them up, and drive a couple hours up into the hills. So I'm 6 o'clock Friday afternoon. I'm laying in bed trying to go to sleep. You ever try to go to sleep when you know you need to go to sleep? It's like a timed exercise. I've only got this many hours, and I'm still awake, and I'm counting down the minutes that I'm wasting instead of sleeping, and that's doing nothing but keep me more awake. Amen? The struggle's real, I promise. I can just imagine Ruth and Boaz laying there that night, and neither one of them can really go back to sleep. I mean, after all that's transpired, uh, I'm sure that in Boaz's mind, he's, he's thinking through the, the events of the next day, how he's going to approach the other kinsman redeemer, how he's going to work things out. Maybe there's some anxiety in his heart about whether or not, you know, he was awful casual about it in his conversation with Ruth, but in his heart, he's worried. You know, what if the guy does want Ruth? What if he is going to come in between them? What if this, this story doesn't end the way that he wants it to end? And so there has to be some tension there, and there has to be some anxiety there, and there has to be some worry there. And there's no doubt that those same worries are on Ruth's mind. Amen. She's laying there and thinking, man, well, I didn't even know about this other fellow. What if he's 
ugly? What if he's unkind? What if he's, you know, undesirable? What if he's, you know, what in the world have I gotten myself into? There has to be some kind of a thought process there. And, and then on top of that, in Ruth's mind, there's the thought, I've got to be up early enough that it's safe to go home, but it's, but it's that twilight era where that, that place in the darkness turning to daylight where nobody will recognize me. I need to be able to get away safely. And so that has to be on her mind as well. They, they probably don't sleep well. But finally they awake under the dark sky as the, as the day is getting ready to dawn, as the night's getting ready to turn into day. They have a second brief conversation. And Boaz supports her effort to get away before anybody can recognize her. Amen. Doesn't want his reputation tarnished any more than he wants her reputation tarnished. And and they couldn't af- they couldn't afford to let someone see her. They know they didn't do anything wrong. We know they didn't do anything wrong. But that doesn't stop the gossips. Amen. There's something to be said about not letting your good be evil spoken of. There's something to be said for you know just being aware that you you know what you're doing is right and I know what you're doing is right. But there's there's always going to be somebody's going to get on social media. Oh bless the Lord! If I get off on that rabbit trail, we'll never get back. They're going to tell what they think is right, whether it's right or not. And and it's kind of like the old bell. Once you ring it, it's hard to unring it. So so Boaz is concerned with avoiding that. And so he sends her off in that twilight era to the home. But he says in verse 15, And he s- also he said, Bring the veil that thou hast upon thee, and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley, and laid it on her, and she went into the city. So maintaining his lavish generosity and demonstrating his good faith, or perhaps it was just that he wanted to give her an excuse if somebody saw her in the night. Going home early in the morning, I went out and you know, I, we need a grain or whatever. I don't know, perhaps he's given her an alibi, if you will. But whatever it is, he, he sent her off with a substantial gift of food. This seems to be the pattern. Amen. Boaz has taken her under his wings. He's blessed her over and over and over and over again. In verse 16, she comes home, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, the mother-in-law said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all the man had done to her. Now, that seems like a weird turn of phrase. Uh, but you got a couple of things here. First of all, if Ruth... And Boaz didn't sleep well that night. You gotta imagine that Naomi didn't either. Amen. After all, she has sent her daughter-in-law off to, to fulfill this scheme that she concocted, this plan that she came up with, and she's got to be wondering how it all worked out. She's got to be wondering how it all went. But the question that she asked when Ruth comes back is is not the question you would expect. And this is one of these places where the translators got it right. Because the question she asks is not, how did it go? She asks, who are you? But what it is in the Hebrew, it's the same phrase that's been already appeared twice in the story. It's the phrase, the words that Boaz asked whenever Ruth was lying at his feet. And he woke in the middle of the night and realized there's a woman at the foot of his bed. And he said, who are you? It's that same phrase. It is, it's a version of the same phrase 
that Boaz used way back at the very beginning of the story when he saw Ruth in the field and he asked not who she was, but whose she was. And that same implication is in this phrase. It's, it's a version of the same phrase that is carried through both of these instances. And is, there's a sense here where Naomi is using those same words to ask a very similar question to what Boaz asked in the first chapter. The, the, what she really wants to know is how did things go? How did it go? Uh, how did it work out? What, but what she's asking is whose are you? Are you mine or his? What's your identity now? Are you still the daughter-in-law of Naomi? That's who you were back in chapter 1. Are you now the bride-to-be of Boaz? That's who you are now. So the, the Hebrew, it makes a whole lot more sense because those words are, are tied back throughout the story. In the English translation, it just looks weird. She knows who she is. Of course she knows who she is. And, and, and she's Ruth. And, and Ruth doesn't even answer who she is. She doesn't say, hi, I'm Ruth. She tells her what happened. She tells her the events of the night. She, she tells her how everything unfolded. Amen? So Ruth's story is coming full circle. Who she was in chapter 1 was, the, the our chap, early chapter 2 was the daughter-in-law of Naomi, the destitute widow. And who she is now is Boaz's wife-to-be. So she told her mother-in-law everything that transpired. And then in verse 17 it says, And he said, These six measures of barley gave he me. For he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. I want you to notice how the narrator, he, he first of all, he condensed the details of the story. I'm getting close to being done. I'm about to make the most important point I'm going to make today. So please don't phase out on me. And don't think, well, I, it's time. He, I've had to give me all the time I'll give him. It's time to think about the roast in the oven or whatever all else. Give me just a few more minutes. Amen? The narrator condensed the telling of the events of the night. The whole conversation is encapsulated in just a few words. She told her all that happened. But now in verse 17, we get back down to word-for-word word details. That happens because the narrator is making an important point in the story. As a matter of fact, he may be making the most important point in the whole story. Ruth says, he gave me six measures of barley and said to me, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty. And there's an important echo here of the lament of Naomi earlier in the story. Naomi, if you'll remember, went out full. But she came back empty. She went out satisfied, but she came back destitute. She went out in the condition of, uh, uh, of having all that she could want or need when she left the house of God. She left the goodness of God, and she was abundantly blessed. But when she came back from Moab, she was empty, and she was destitute, and she was broken, and she was bitter. Amen? And now we see Ruth as the reversal of those fortunes. Ruth went out empty, but she's coming back full. Ruth went out with nothing. She didn't have anything going for her. But when she comes back, she's not coming back empty like Naomi did. What a reversal. Naomi leaves the house of bread 
Bethlehem, the house of God, uh, a land of promise. Uh, and when she leaves, she's full. But when she goes out into the world, uh, Moab robs her of everything she has. It takes from her her wealth, her prosperity, her peace, her health, her husband, her sons, everything she has, she loses in Moab. And when she comes back, she comes back empty and broken and destitute. But Ruth leaves Moab coming out of the world and coming to the house of God. And she's broken and destitute and empty just like Naomi. But now her fortunes are reversed. And just as surely as Moab robbed Naomi of everything that was important and good in her life, Ruth finds fulfillment in the presence of God and in the promises of God, and she is made full. Amen? These words signaled to Naomi as well that because Naomi's, Naomi's future is bound to Ruth's future. Wherever you go, I'll go. Your people be my people. Wherever you lodge, I'll lodge. Your God's going to be my God. That's not a one-way promise. Naomi's future is bound to Ruth's future. And so if Ruth is full, if Ruth is provided for, then Naomi is too. And so it's a reversal of Naomi's condition. What we found early in the story, she went out full and she came back empty. Now we find she come to the house of God empty. But when she leaves, she's going to leave full again. Amen? When you come into his presence, that's how it works in God's house. When you come into his presence, you may come in empty, but you're going to leave full. Amen? The final verse, verse 18, says, then, she, then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. So Naomi has the last word in the chapter, and she says, you know, Boaz is a man of character, and he will not rest until the matter is settled today. It's the final repetition in the chapter, and you may have picked up on it already, but if you remember, whenever Naomi instructed Ruth of what she wanted her to do in the night, she used the word rest as a euphemism for marriage, that she would go and seek rest. And we even titled that lesson Seeking Rest, which I intended to title this one, She Came Out Full, but somehow I never did get the slide to, to Dino, so the title has been uh, wrong, but it's okay. And so she was seeking rest. There's a nice parallel in the story here where we see that Ruth found rest, and Boaz won't find any rest until he fulfills that. Amen? I'm not going to meddle. I'm just going to leave that alone. Amen? So Boaz will not rest until Ruth is able to find her rest. Amen. Would you stand with me? So when we started this story, way back at the very beginning of the story of Ruth, we spent several weeks, two or three, four weeks, talking about Naomi, talking about her story, telling about the tragedy of her life. And at one point in all that, my wife asked me, she said, I, I, this is a story about Ruth. I want to hear about Ruth and Boaz. Why are we spending so much time on Naomi? Why are we spending so much time on, on her brokenness and her emptiness? This is the reason why. This is more than just a love story between Ruth and Boaz. This is a story of the goodness of God. It's a story of reversal of fortune. 
It's a story of how Naomi went out full but came back empty and how Ruth went out empty and comes back full. The difference in between being empty and full is the direction that you're going. When Naomi leaves the house of God, she goes from empty to full. But when Ruth leaves Moab, leaves the world, comes back to the house of God, she goes out empty and comes into fullness. The fullness in both cases is in the house of God. The emptiness in both cases is in Moab. It's in the world. The difference in between going out full and coming back empty or going out empty and coming back full is the direction you're going to or from the house of God. It's a settled fact, my friend. This world will empty you and the house of God will fill you. It's a settled truth. This world will rob you of everything. It'll take from you, systematically destroy your hope, your faith, your confidence. It'll, it'll give you nice things and then steal away from you the things that really matter in life. It will empty you. But the presence of God will always, always fill you up. It'll always satisfy. It'll and even more than that, that the story doesn't just end with Naomi going out empty or going out full and come back empty, and Ruth going out empty and come back full. But but Naomi's fortunes are tied to Ruth's fortunes, and so we see the complete reversal of Naomi's situation. There's more than just a promise that if you come out of the world and you come into the presence of God, that God's going to fill you out. Uh, there's also the promise that if you leave the house of God and you go to Moab and you end up broken and destitute and empty, if you'll just come home, uh, there's a reversal that happens uh, in the house of God. Uh, and that which was empty becomes full again. Uh, and that which was lost uh, is restored again. And that which you thought you would never gain again, you find all over again in the presence of God. That's why we have to tell the story of Naomi. Because Ruth's story is not about coming back empty. It's about coming back full. I just believe in this house. I feel the presence of God very rich in this place. I'm going to ask you if you'd find a place of prayer for the next few moments, if you just turn your heart towards heaven, perhaps you find yourself in a place where you need something from God. I'm going to tell you, whatever you need, amen, he's here today. Amen. Whatever it is that you're hungry for, whatever it is that you're thirsty for, whatever it is that you desire, you may have come into the house of God empty, amen, but you don't have to go home the way you came. Uh, amen. You may have come into the house of God uh, with, with some brokenness, uh, but you don't have to go home the way you came. You may have come into the house of God with with some bitterness. Maybe you've lost your direction. Maybe you're unsure of where you are. Amen. But I'm going to tell you something. Uh, in the presence of God, uh, there's fullness of joy. Uh, in the presence of God, uh, there's a peace that passes understanding. Uh, in the presence of God, everything you need, everything you want, everything you could ever desire, you'll find in His presence. Why don't you turn your heart towards heaven this morning? Why don't you let the Lord, amen, fill you up. Boaz said to Ruth, bring me your shawl. Open it up. I'll pour you out a blessing. I just believe that God's in this house saying, if you'll just, if you'll just bring it to me. If you'll just make yourself available, I'll pour you out a blessing. 
If you just open up your heart, if you just open up your life, I'll pour you out a blessing. Would you call out to him right now?